Romans 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Good morning. Welcome to Boulder Seventh-day Adventist Church. Um, today is the fourth sermon in a four-part series on law and grace. Um, I don't know about you, but this morning, um, it's fairly cool outside, but it's starting to warm up. It looks like it's going to be a sunny day when that fog blows off. And I remember when I was younger, when I was at Walla Walla, I'd love to play basketball on a, on a day like today. And I went back to Walla Walla recently with eight people uh, from Campion, my son being one of them, for college days with Sherry. Um, Sherry and I both took this group. And uh, it was interesting going back to Walla Walla because it's very different. Um, we used to love to play basketball there. The, the basketball courts where we used to play, there, it was a little grade school that was across from the girls' dorm. And it's not there anymore. It's, uh, it's a big grade school and it's completely remodeled and those courts aren't there. And then when we were really feeling good, we'd play basketball down by the gym where the baskets were a little bit higher. And those aren't there either. Um, I don't know if it's liability or whatever, but these courts are all gone. The house where I used to live, uh, kind of near the girls' dorm, is not there. There's an apartment building there. And everything's changed in this uh, 23 years while I was away. While I was out there, I met with Scott Schaefer. Scott Schaefer was a high school PE teacher at Mount Ellis Academy. And he kind of taught me how to play basketball. And I remember when I was at Mount Ellis, eventually I made the varsity team, which didn't really say much because 
There was about a little over 40 kids there, only half of which were remotely interested in playing basketball. And, and so anyway, eventually I made this varsity team. And I remember he taught us to run this offense. And so he wanted us doing something specific on the court. And so we would have the five people there and somebody would run really fast and make a cut and then somebody would throw them the basketball. Somebody else would be cutting and then they would throw the basketball to them and they had this system. And the idea was eventually you'd get open, nobody would be very close to you and you could shoot the basket with no hand in your face or anybody sort of in your way. And, and the idea was the percentage of shot would be higher if you had this scenario. And so we ran this offense, but the problem was I was so, in, so focused on getting the ball and getting it to the next guy, I wouldn't even look at the rim. And so the coach would yell out, shoot! You know, and, and so eventually I was able to calm down and stop playing kind of hot potato with the ball where I wanted to get rid of it immediately, and it would pause and look at the basket. But then I, would, I started shooting, but it was like I would get the ball and I would just kind of throw it like this at the basket. And that, that's not real high percentage. And so the coach said, you know, slow down, take your time, square up to the basket, and make your shot. And so then I was just starting to get to this point where I was able to kind of slow down and really shoot more effectively. And we were playing in a game, and somebody was shooting a free throw. And so I was lined up on the free th on the, uh, to rebound. I was closest to the hoop. And so the person shot, and they missed. And the ball came right to me, and I was so excited. I jumped up and grabbed the ball, and as I landed, I realized nobody was really right around me. There was nobody stopping me from just making the shot. So I jumped up and made the shot, took my time, lined everything up just right, and felt so good for about two seconds. I started running back down the court, and I saw people snickering at me, people laughing at me, weird expressions, people pointing. Something seemed wrong, and people weren't running. Like, when you make a shot, there's a certain way that everybody runs down. People weren't running that way. It was just all wrong. And I realized that halftime had occurred, we'd switch sides, and I just scored for the other team. <laughs> so it was a close game, and I realized I might just have lost the game, right? My actions had caused our team, you know, it was not good. I had blown it. Have you guys ever blown it? Maybe you could tell a similar story. Some of you are saying, I'm not really interested in sports. What are you even talking about? Well. Let me tell a story that might be more relevant for you. So at Mount Ellis Academy, dating was kind of a weird thing. There was about 90 of us. We all, kind of all knew each other. And so we didn't really go on dates. You know, it was this, uh, it was a dorm situation. And we kind of gravitated into knowing each other, sitting with each other, hanging out with each other at events. And somehow you kind of evolved into going out, right? It was mysterious. And, and so when I went to Walla Walla, it was a very different world out there. Uh, people asked other people on dates, and uh, you'd see some girl you were kind of interested in, but you had to figure out how you were going to approach this person. There's 2,000 people there, and you wouldn't just sort of get to know them automatically. You had to make some sort of effort and figure something out. So I realized I had to adapt my dating games uh, dramatically. So. I ended up hanging out with a bunch of guys that had that and another of, another of, uh, a number of other things in common. And so um, we had this game that we played, and I'm not recommending this to anybody, 
But um, in, the, in this dorm room, we had this putting green. It was almost like we were playing miniature golf. So it was this green carpet that went, and it had this little raised area with a hole there, and we would putt. And so each week, we would get together, and we would have this putting uh, competition. And the deal was this. If you made your putts, you didn't have to ask anybody out. But if you missed your putt, you had to ask a girl out. And so you had to declare before we even started who you were going to ask out. This accomplished a couple of different things. It made sure that nobody was ever going to ask the same girl out, so we could kind of have our guy code where we weren't pursuing the same girl. But it also um, almost ensured that we would remain single. Why? Because we had to ask a girl out within like a day or at the most two days of this event, and it, the time was never right, right? It was always awkward. You were approaching this girl in this completely awkward way to ask her out. And so it just didn't go well. And so in the middle, in the middle of this, what I would call my girl drought, um, miracle of miracles, a girl asked me out. And I looked her up in the mask at Walla Walla, and she was really good looking. I was like, great. And then I asked around a little bit, and somebody said, yeah, I know her. She's really cool, nice girl. I'm like, what's not to like? This is outstanding. She wanted to take me to a, a little sporting event, which I, great, I feel comfortable with that. And, um, and then she offered to drive, which I thought was great because I had a diesel station wagon and I didn't have to drive my car, which I was a little bit embarrassed of. So I was super excited about this, so the, the day arrived. Um, the date was at five o'clock in the evening and at about two in the afternoon, uh, I freed up from whatever studies I was doing or, or whatever, and I decided to go out and play basketball. That's what I like to do. And so my friends and I were all out there playing basketball. We had three hours after all. We normally played for an hour or two. So we went down and played in these, um, these baskets that were down by the gym. Had a great time. And after we were done playing, we were trying to see if we could dunk, and I was super close that day. And I was managed to dunk a few times on this nine foot six rim, which for me was a real challenge at the time. And so as I was doing this and having a great time, it suddenly dawned on me, we've been here a long time. And uh, I found some, some, one of the guys had a watch somewhere and, hey, what time is it? And it's 4.55. My date was at five. So I'm just kind of a hot mess, right? I've, I'm sweating and I've got gym clothes on and I'm in no shape to go to this date. And I kind of panic. I just start, I got to go, guys. I start running towards the, towards the dorm. And, um, and I'm, as I'm running, I'm thinking, what do I do? This is terrible. I can't believe I lost track of time. And I'm running along, and suddenly dawns on me, I guess I'll, I'll just call her and tell her what happened. I mean, I don't know what else I'm supposed to do. This is, this is not good. And so I called her room, because we didn't have cell phones in those days, right? So I'm old, right? So I, I called her room. And, um, and I got an answering machine. She didn't answer. And so I left a message. I said, hey, I'm so sorry. Uh, I lost track of time. I was playing basketball. And, you know, so sorry. Um, you know, I'm going to see what I can do to find you or whatever. And then I tried calling the lobby of the girl's dorm. That's where we were supposed to meet. And no luck there either. She wasn't there. And the realization kind of hit me. Um, wow, we're just not going to go out on this date, and I really blew it. And I started thinking about how pathetic my, my message that I left her must sound. Yeah, I was playing basketball, I lost track of time. Really? 
I had really blown it. We were done, and it hadn't even started. How about you? Have you really blown it? A mistake that cost your team, your business, your church? We all have, haven't we? If we're honest with ourselves, we aren't always the hero in the story. I'm the jerk in the story. I stood her up. But some of us don't remember it that way. We can rationalize these memories away. We tend to use cognitive dissonance to rewrite the past to make ourselves the good guy. Cognitive dissonance is the psychologic discomfort that comes with holding two or more conflicting views at the same time. So mentally, it isn't isn't comfortable to believe one thing that's completely in conflict with another thing at the same time. It feels bad. And so we tend to subconsciously do what is necessary to have a single view or narrative. If necessary, your brain will even change a memory to make it all fit. An example of this is Tom Brokaw's interview of Gore Vidal on the Today Show. According to Vidal, Brokaw started saying, you've written a lot about bisexuality. But Vidal cut him off saying, Tom, let me tell you about these morning shows. It's too early to talk about sex. Nobody wants to hear about it this hour. If they do, they're doing it. Don't bring it up. They went on to discuss President Carter and the politics on the show. Years later, Brokaw became an anchor on the nightly news. Time did a feature on him. One of the questions they asked was about an especially difficult interview that he had conducted. Brokaw singled out the conversation with Gore Vidal. I wanted to talk about politics, Gore recalled, and he kept bringing up bisexuality. It was a total reversal, Gore Vidal said, to make me the villain of the story. Brokaw is unlikely to have lied in this story because he chose to bring this story up after all. It is likely that gradually his mind rewrote the events to remember himself in a positive light in the story. It's hard to remember yourself being the jerk in a story. You always had a reason. You were provoked, etc. Sometimes, though, we are the villain. Have you ever blown it for the city, the state, the nation? How about the entire human race? Adam did. Just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, verse 12. Adam really blew it. It was Adam's action that had dire consequences for the human race. God gave Adam a simple command, Genesis 2, 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam eats it. Yes, he's involved, but Paul is focusing on Adam here. Adam eats the fruit. He blew it for him, his kids, and every human sense. That's blowing it. Adam starts the human race down the sin path. Imagine a reunion in heaven. So you're Adam? Wow, you caused us a lot of pain. Adam's going to blush a little bit. He's going to feel embarrassed. He's going to feel a little bit like I did my senior year in high school when the decision was made to go to the state track meet in Billings, Montana. Now, I had competed in track meets in grade school. Track meets were this thing where, you know, we all got together, went to this, uh, the high school track, and we would all go there and just compete. And there was no training, there was no preparation, there was nothing. And I competed in everything. I ran the 100, the 200, the 400, the relay, the high jump, the long jump, the softball throw, you did everything. And so, um, there, wasn't, there was eight kids in our school. I was the only you know, person in my grade, so I had to do everything. And so I had no nervousness. I mean, if I was bad at something, like the high jump was not a great event for me. Um, 
I would get fourth place or something like this. There was only four people competing in the event most of the time in my grade. And so there was ribbons for the first, second, and third. I would come back with a handful of ribbons, and I wouldn't really stress about the fact that, you know, maybe I hadn't competed that well in a few different things. And so now it's high school, and there we are uh, competing. And so I had this mentality that was no big deal. People weren't that into this. And so he said, I want you to throw the shot put. I had never thrown the shot put. So it's this, you know, for those of you that don't know, it's this metal ball and the discus, which is kind of like a, a frisbee of sorts, but you throw it, you kind of throw it like this instead of throwing it like a, like a frisbee. And so he taught, it, he taught me how to do it. You basically stand, you know, like this, and you do this little spin maneuver like this, and you throw it. And, and so you do the same thing with the discus. It's the same kind of maneuver. And so I practiced that. And in the beginning, you know, I would throw, and I'd be meaning to throw this way, and my ball would be going over here or whatever. I'd be getting dizzy. I'd be tripping over myself as I did this little spin move. And as the 15 minutes went on, I kind of mastered that, and so I wasn't falling down anymore, and I was throwing the ball roughly in the direction I wanted to go. And so I gave it back to the, you know, my coach, and we were done for the day. Well... As I thought about this, I decided, you know what, I should probably practice at least once. And so I, I went down to the coach and I said, hey, would you mind if I just checked out the shot put and the discus and did a little practice? This is two weeks before the event now, so two weeks had gone by. Sure, no problem, here you go. And so I go down to the football field and I practice. And I find that miracle of miracles, if I throw the discus, you know, a little bit higher up, it actually goes further than if I throw this thing as hard as I can, you know, kind of flat. And so little epiphanies like this, you know, were kind of coming to me, and I'm like, wow, um, I think I can improve through practice on this a little bit. And, um, and I felt really good about spending that extra, you know, 15 minutes of uh, practice. I thought I was really being diligent. So we went to the state competition, and there I realized these are really big schools. Like, one of the schools there had 2,000 kids in it. Ours had 90. You know, the whole Division 1A, whatever, you know, it was kind of out the window. It was just kind of like we were there competing with these giant schools from Billings, Montana, Great Falls, Montana, and these, these really big places in Montana relative to, to us. And so as the event started, the guys were practicing, and I'm looking at these guys, and they look like a bunch of gorillas. I mean, they had arms the size of my legs. You know, it was obvious they had been lifting weights since they were a small child preparing for this. And I'm just like, what am I doing? And so when we competed, they had a tight clumping. You know, they probably all threw, and I don't even remember, but somewhere around 40 feet, and their balls were kind of within a space of about this big. You know, they all were very, you know, six inches a foot away from each other or whatever, very close. And mine's like eight feet back this way, right? It's not close. And so it was humiliating, right? I didn't measure up. I was an outlier. I didn't, I had the opportunity to really embarrass my school. It's like, and you're from what school? And Models Academy, you know. It was awful. Any golfers out there? You ever stand up at that tee box and you hit your drive and you watch the ball to your whore go like this? way off the fairway, over the houses, and you hear this bang, 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 clunk. And you realize, I probably damaged somebody else's property right there. As many of you know, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I do hip and knee replacements. If I have a bad day, I don't limp. Someone else does. Someone else has to suffer for my mistake. 
That is only a little about how Adam's going to feel in heaven. Imagine, so you're the guy who sinned and got us all thrown out of the garden. You're the guy that sinned and brought about death and all that is bad in the universe. Why did sin lead to death? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23 Because sin is separation from God, and separation from God leads to death. So death spread to all men because all sin. Verse 12. I wonder if the fruit actually did anything. Maybe the first genetic mutation? The fruit signified our keeping our end of the bargain. If we weren't obedient, we would be separated from God and thus begin to die. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Verse 13. Each year it gets harder to follow the law. Why? Because we're constantly making more laws, and this is no different from religious laws. They added more and more laws, so there were more transgressions of the law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Verse 14. Some people didn't disobey a specific command like Adam. After all, there weren't ten commandments yet. So what did these people do exactly? Well, the law was love and togetherness with God, and they broke that one law. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 15. So just like one man blew up for all of us, Adam, one man, Jesus, died for all of us, giving us grace. And the gift is free. Has anybody ever given you something great? A little blurry, but you can kind of see it. It's a lot of money, right? If I gave you this money today, what would you say? Thanks. Maybe stammer a little bit about my generosity, right? At some point, you'd say, why? You'd be thinking, he must want something. This is some sort of a transaction. What does he want? What strings are attached? There's no free lunch. It's something we're taught in economics and seems to hold true in the world. It was popularized by Milton Friedman, a Nobel Prize-winning economist. I found this free lunch thing to be particularly true in a little story of mine when we lived in Virginia. So Sherry and I got an invitation uh, to go and go down to Colonial Williamsburg and spend some time down there. And um, it was free. We had free hotel, free meals, everything. All we had to do is just attend this one little sales lecture on timeshares. So Sherry and I went down there and with our two boys at the time. We had a great time. We enjoyed the sights and learning about Williamsburg and, and all of this. And I wasn't much of a history buff, so it was mostly new to me. But uh, we had a great time down there. And um, we enjoyed our, our whole time. And then it was Sunday and it was time to go. And it was time for that little sales course. And just one hour, right? Yeah, five hours later, I bought a timeshare. Okay? And this makes my top five bad investments, okay? Um, I think it's number three for me of my worst investments that I've ever made. Um, but it isn't true regarding the greatest gift ever, which is grace. So this brings up our first recalibrate question. Are worldly and heavenly economics the same? Worldly economic principles fail in heaven. They are only true on earth. 
This is why grace is so foreign, so confusing. We're always looking for what we need to do. There's got to be something. There's no free lunch, right? It feels right to rewrite the verse. If we cleanse ourselves, he's faithful to forgive us for our past mistakes. But it doesn't say that, does it? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. In order to confess, we have to accept that we made a mistake, don't we? If we admit that we are wrong to God, he can make us better. He can weed out the bad things. To truly accept grace, we have to believe that we need it, that we are sinners. We don't need to do anything but accept the grace that's already been given to us. So if that's true, why are some Adventists hesitant to hold up their hands when we ask, who's been saved? Right? You see a lot of perplexed looks, maybe slow responses, if you were to ask that in a lot of Adventist congregations. John Reisinger, there are really only two religions, those that believe I have to do something to find favor with God or to be good enough for salvation, and those that believe in the grace of God and that salvation is available to all of us if we accept it. I've spent a good share of my time as an Adventist in that first religion. Paul doesn't support that first religion. That brings up a recalibrate question. What must I do to be saved? Paul answers this nicely in Acts 16.31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, you and your household. The only reason to not hold up your hand is you don't believe the gift that has already been given. Jesus died 2,000 years ago. He already did it. The question is, are you going to accept the grace that came about from his death? You can't change whether he died or not. You can't change whether or not you need his grace. We all do. This brings up another recalibrate question. If I told Paul I was having trouble following the law, what would he say? I think he'd say, me too. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The only question is, will you accept the gift that has been given on the cross? So we need to all raise our hands when we're asked if we've been saved and move on. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, very strong disapproval. I have to kind of translate this. My vocabulary is not so big on some of these things. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification, or just if I didn't do it status, verse 16. We deserve to be found guilty, but the one free gift brought just if I didn't do it status, even righteousness. For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, verse 17. So Jesus' gift is so great it outweighs the mistake that Adam made. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men, verse 18. Adam's mistake caused all of us to be guilty of sin. But one act of righteousness, Jesus dying on the cross, leads to forgiveness and eternal life for us all. Does that sound like hope to anyone? For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Verse 19. So one man blew it, Adam, and one man fixed it, Jesus. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, verses 20 and 21. So as the law has grown through U.S. history, it has become increasingly challenging to follow it. In medicine, we have the Stark Laws. 
Pete Stark, a congressman from California, kind of the, near Oakland, a really well-known atheist um, that was in Congress from 73 until just recently, 2013, came up, really was instrumental in bringing about a number of different laws in healthcare. And as a doctor, I can't tell you how many times we've had to get legal opinions trying to figure out if we're being compliant with the Stark laws. And so it's, it's just this constant thing. But even so, there are areas in medicine where there aren't really laws, and it feels uncomfortable because you, you worry what law they're going to apply to you if there aren't really laws specific to you what you're doing. And so I've actually requested that they make laws before in an area of healthcare because I felt uncomfortable. So it was the same thing back then. They added Leviticus and books like it because there were little gaps in the law and they felt uncomfortable. They added more and more clarifications to try to, try to bring about this, uh, this feeling of comfort. It became increasingly challenging, though, to follow the law and resulted in none of us being able to follow the law. We are all guilty of breaking the law. We can't possibly do something so bad, though, that grace can't make up for it. Grace can abound all the more for us, too. We can admit that we are sinners, accept the gift that has been waiting for us for 2,000 years. We have hope. No matter how bad we've blown it, even Adam, the debt has been paid. Someone bought the ticket to heaven to be with Jesus for us. We just have to accept it. When someone asks whether we are saved or not, we need to not start thinking about what we've done. We need only to have one thought. Do I accept God's ticket, his gift, his grace? Yes, right? Jesus' death brought us hope, hope for a new life with him, hope that no matter how bad my heart is, how awful my actions are, how sinful my nature, he can save me anyway. Because his grace is bigger, his grace is always greater. When someone asks whether we are saved, we need to say yes in confidence. Once we get past that fact that we are saved, then the good stuff can happen. We can let Jesus change us into what he wants us to be. Anyone out there need Jesus to change you? Me too. I challenge you this week to ask God to change you. If you're sitting next to maybe your wife, your husband, your boyfriend or girlfriend, I'm not talking about him or her. I'm talking about you. I'm challenging you to invite God to change you. If anyone hasn't accepted your free gift of grace that Jesus gave us, please reach out to one of our pastors, elders, or a member that you're just comfortable talking to. My request for the rest of you, go home this week and ask God to show you what needs to be changed in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and the gift of your son Jesus. Help us to believe in that grace. Help us to accept your gift. Mold us into what you want us to be. Weed out the cognitive dissonance, the thought errors that we have, the things that get in between us. Be with us this coming week and show us how to be more like you, Lord. In your name, amen.